It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says dynamite with a laser beam guaranteed to blow your mind. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want to start with a lamentable fact. Lamentable fact? It's quite lamentable. You're about to hear the lamentations of your, your friend here. I am prepared to lament. People are less intrigued by lasers than they used to be. I think that's that's a true fact. When it's something that can be put on a keychain mm-hmm. <laughs> on your keys, I, I agree. Like when it becomes yeah. that commonplace. Yeah. Uh, I get the sense that back in the Goldfinger era, lasers <laughs> were this fresh, scary, really original and, and fascinating sci-fi trope. And now they're boring to us. They're what we use to make the cat run into the wall. I will say that I was not aware that this was a thing, although it makes perfect sense. I saw a video on YouTube recently in which a group of people went to a laser maze where you go into a dark room where there are lasers crisscrossing all the room. And your job is to navigate from one part of the room to the other side without breaking any of the laser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in that bad Sean Connery movie. Yes. Uh 
What are you talking the about? The one that has With uh, Catherine, Catherine Zeta Zeta Jones, Jones in the it. The famous and her butt. shot of her butt going yeah. beneath the yeah. oh, Un- unnecessarily yeah. arching. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is unnecessary. You know, my my <laughs> I've point been to one of those. It's great. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, I gotta try it. My, my point of comparison there is actually, I believe, the Ducktales movie, <laughs> in which there's a scene where Scrooge McDuck must uh, infiltrate his own compound, and it has a moving laser beam. Uh, area. Yeah, like a grid of lasers that you have to maneuver through. Uh-huh. So there, there's still, I would argue, there's still some life left in the old laser still at, at this point, but well, yeah, some of the luster has, has worn off. Well, we, we're gonna polish off lasers for you today. Yes, we are. Because, yeah. uh, because we're gonna talk about the upper end of lasers, the ones that are truly astounding. And even. still kind of terrifying. Yeah. And if you don't agree, you're just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's easy. That's 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 a, a factual statement. Okay, but so lasers, where did they come from? <laughs> well, this all goes back to uh, uh, the early days of radio, actually, because you got to think about the time where you have people who first discover that there is such a thing as electromagnetic radiation, mm-hmm. and then they start to figure out how to generate electromagnetic radiation and to receive it using radio waves, and then there was this effort to study this uh, this part of physics and to try and figure out, well, if we can do this, you know, this range of frequencies, this range of wavelengths, really, of radio waves, uh, what if we could aim at trying to harness shorter wavelengths? Yeah, yeah. Quick basic physics lesson, if, uh, if you're not familiar. Radio waves, visible light, these are all the same stuff. It's just different wavelengths on the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way that manifests is very different to us. That's the way we perceive them or cannot perceive them mm-hmm. uh, is dependent upon the wavelengths and or frequency. Those two are related. Yeah. Uh, so radio wavelengths are long. We can measure those in terms of like meters. Uh, then we started to learn how to deal with radar, which deals with frequencies that are uh, measured closer to centimeters to millimeters. And then we started having some really smart people ask some really interesting questions about what else can we do with electromagnetic frequencies and wavelengths? Uh, and one of those physicists was named Charles H. Towns, who passed away in January 2015. Yeah. Um, actually, I remember specifically when he passed because a lot of people started saying uh, he is the, in a, a essence, he's the father of the laser. Although I think there's some debate about that. Well, also we should we should mention, and this this is good to say whenever we talk about who invented what, mm-hmm. it's never as simple as one person coming up with an idea fully formed. It's usually uh, the culmination of years, if not decades of work from dozens or hundreds of people that lead up to a point where this invention is possible. So we do not wish to suggest that Charles H. Towns uh, by himself came up with all yeah. of this, but yeah. he science, certainly pushed it forward. Science doesn't happen in a vacuum, except right. sometimes experiments do. Yeah, and occasionally you get some crazy Einstein who comes up with a fully formed, fleshed out theory. Well, I've even seen some debate about that, like people talking about to what extent Einstein's discoveries were inevitable. W- would somebody have discovered the same thing around the same time if he hadn't? Interesting. 
thing. Hmm. So the point being that that you know we we don't wish to say that other people don't deserve credit, but Towns is often pointed at as sort of the father of lasers. And he he was looking at creating precise beams of shortwave radiation. Right. Um, microwave radiation specifically. Yeah, yeah, microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation is what he called it, or or masers. Yeah, and uh, and it's an acronym, folks. We've brought this up on the podcast before, but you always got to remember, laser is a word now that you spell in lowercase letters. Because we use the word so often in science fiction. <laughs> that, that people got sick of capitalizing it, yeah, basically. But originally yeah. it was an acronym, same same principle as MASER mm-hmm. as an yeah. acronym. Yeah. Although MASER is also now just a noun. Yeah. It's just spelled with lowercase letters as well. But uh, so so he came up with this idea for Mazers and he built the first working Mazer in 1953. He had some help. Uh, James P. Gordon and H.J. Zeiger worked with him at the Colum- at Columbia University. And this was a great jump forward in science and technology. But Mazers had limited practical uh, applications. Yeah. What do you do with a focused beam of microwaves? Well, you can do lots of different things that that have been useful in science and technology, but not to the same extent that you would be able to create a, an effect using, I don't know, even shorter wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's radiation. the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that leads us to towns thinking about these shorter wavelengths. Now, for a while, people have been trying to create a device that could use uh, the the far infrared spectrum, but we're running into lots of problems. It was really difficult to control, to create, to manipulate these infrared wavelengths. And Towns hit upon an idea. He said, you know, it looks to me that these shorter wavelengths would actually be easier than infrared. Like we could skip this part of the spectrum. But once you get shorter than infrared, you get into the visible spectrum, which is the light we see every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, until you keep going and get to a point where it's even shorter than what we can see. But exactly that. It was in the visible spectrum. So he had essentially theorized that we could probably build a device that would use visible light uh, and just skip the infrared part for now, at any rate. And he began to work with another physicist named Arthur Shallow. Uh, Shallow was his brother-in-law. And Shallow ended up actually cracking the code for creating a working laser. So he created a very long, thin chamber, and he put mirrors on either end of the chamber. One of the mirrors was not perfectly silvered, meaning that some light could escape through this mirror. Mm-hmm. And then he would start to pass a ray of light back and forth into this chamber, uh, there, which also had atoms of some substance, depending upon what he was experimenting with, mm-hmm. and found that because he was using these mirrors and the light, the rays were passing back and forth uh, over and over again, it increased the chances of them interacting and thus stimulating these atoms, which would emit radiation. And some of that radiation would escape through the, the, the partially silvered mirror on one end, and that would create this coherent light, this this focused beam of light. And thus, the laser was born. However, there was another physicist, another colleague of Towns, who had also spoken with Charles Towns about this idea, named Gordon Gould, who was working on the problem himself. And he came up with a name for a device that would do this, and he called it laser and instead of microwave, it's light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Uh, so you had Gould working on this and you had uh, Shallow working on this. 
Many other physicists around the world were also working on this problem and making various contributions that would eventually lead to better devices being made down the line. Uh, yeah, yeah, making it practical. Yes. So uh, here's where we get into the contention about who invented the laser. So already we've got lots of different parties involved. Uh, the three big ones that we're talking about, of course, are Towns, Shallow, and Gould, but others as well. Uh, you get to a point where Towns and Shallow were working. Uh, Shallow was actually employed by Bell Labs and Towns was working as a consultant for Bell Labs. Hmm. Meanwhile, Gould was working for a company called TRG. Uh, it's sort of like a, uh, a research and development company. And Gould maintained that he had filed uh, for a patent for the laser idea before uh, Shallow and, and uh, Towns had. Um, but Bell Labs had been... Uh, awarded the the patent. So there was this big argument about who came up with the actual idea and it it waged for decades. I would love to hear the courtroom proceedings in that. I mean, <laughs> if it actually did it make it to the court or was it yeah. just all uh, back yeah, and forth yeah. legal documentation? Well, the the settlements didn't start coming in until 1987. So yeah. we're talking like decades of of legal battles and uh, multiple ones, not just like a single court case. So it was one of those things where it got really ugly. I mean, if you ever want to read about patent wars, this would be a pretty good one to dive into. At any rate, uh, we tend to look at the, this trio in particular as being the, the physicists who brought lasers into being. Although keep in mind, like we said, lots of other people made contributions, some of them very much significant to the success of lasers. Now, the main real laser we're going to talk about in this episode is going to be a research laser. But if you say laser yeah. and future in the same sentence You're to somebody. Like Dr. Evil. Of course you are, because <laughs> that that's the way it has largely been imagined in science fiction. Any any future projection of the use of lasers probably has something to do with weaponry. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I was wondering, we, we should actually talk about this before we get into the most amazing laser on Earth today. What is up with the sci-fi depiction of the laser gun or, you know, the, the sort of future laser weapon? Is there any reality to that? Uh, especially is there any reality to the way it's imagined as a kind of handheld device? Well, it's kind of the most simplistic application of, of a laser because it's obvious that these things get warm. <laughs> so, so I suppose it's just the easiest thing to, to imagine is like, well, a big one gets really, really warm and then Alderan goes kaput. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I want to offer, uh, my own qualification of the future lasers. I have a problem with the fact that every time there is a futuristic movie with laser guns in it, standing to the side, you can see the laser blast. <laughs> You know, you see it traversing oh, the you distance. Mean, well, this, like you see like, like a like a distinct a distinct uh, yeah. dash of yeah. light. Yeah. When really, unless you're looking at it head on, it should be invisible to you, right? Uh, the future is entirely filled with uh, fog machines. Ah. Uh, see, yeah. it really depends. It depends on. It doesn't show up on camera, but <laughs> it depends on the wattage of laser. It depends upon uh, the frequency, because that will determine the color and if it's within the visible spectrum, whether or not you can see it. And it depends on how long the laser is turned on. Like if you were to turn it on, on like the laser on a, a laser pointer, and it was a dark enough environment with some particulate matter in the area, certainly you could see a beam. Uh, if it's not, however, you probably wouldn't. 
alternately, I would say that everyone in the future is wearing augmented reality contacts and yeah. that do kind of the same thing that uh, that television networks do when they're broadcasting uh, football or hockey or something oh, like that over, and kind of overlay add, a line, overlay a line oh, to yeah. show you where things are happening. I, you get will, the play by play laser battle with yeah. the drawings on your eyes. I will yeah, say yeah. at least at least, uh, you know, the laser blaster type stuff in Star Wars is supposed to be uh, a blaster in the sense that it's actually projecting something besides pure light because although obviously otherwise you would never see yeah. the the blast move from the gun to the target it would be far too fast but think about how creepy it would be if you made that sci-fi movie a, a weapon with the invisible kill like you oh, just yeah. point it and you see nothing it's actually the much melts. scarier yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it doesn't quite happen that quickly yeah uh, <laughs> So. Yeah, a, a, it's yeah, right. It's it's it would not be an immediate blast effect the way that we see right. it in movies, or at least not anything like that from the technology that we have today. What where is the technology of well, this today? Uh, some of it's in the military. Uh, but, uh, okay, so when you come down to the handheld laser gun, that's pretty much that's pretty much a, a non-starter right now, and I'll get into why in a second. But there are multiple reasons why it's not very practical. Um, the the big one is that well. We've got some lasers that are used for military purposes, like actual semi-weaponized type lasers. Uh, in 2013, the United States Navy announced it would equip the USS Ponce with a laser weapon system, also known as LAWS, L-little-a-w-s. And the system had been tested on drones and been proven to reduce a drone to no longer a drone or you know, <laughs> garbage or whatever. It just made it no longer work. And uh, uh, it's interesting. So so who found the six commercial cutting lasers uh, oh, fact? that's me. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. I didn't see that. It, so. it basically just, yeah, stacks six commercial cutting lasers. Um, and, and it, in the process, winds up using really quite a lot of energy. Yes, yes. In fact, that is one of the uh, big issues. Now, on one hand... They're way cheaper on a per shot basis than using alternate methods like missiles. Oh, sure. Yeah, because the Navy said, hey, it costs us about a buck to shoot this laser off once. It costs us hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch a single missile that Uh, we would launch at, at a drone Typically. Sure, because it's filled with uh, computer bits and all kinds of other stuff and expensive yeah. metals and light is relatively inexpensive yeah. to create. Yeah, yeah, it's not that not that bad, but it does take a lot of uh, energy. And there are other things you got to consider, right? If you're going to be using light as a weapon, there are other things that can end up being uh, uh, a problem. Oh, sure. the Like the density of the atmosphere, because as we have said many times on the show, air is not thin. It's a soup. And so even the world's most powerful laser, which we will, I promise, get to talking to in a few minutes here, um, <laughs> couldn't shoot down anything so far away as a satellite, certainly due to atmospheric interference. The very best that I've heard of a laser doing in terms of distance through the atmosphere is a German company called MBDA Deutschland uh, claiming that it can knock out a drone from three kilometers away, which is a little bit less than two miles. Mm. Now, like I said, you got to use a lot of power. Lauren mentioned this too. You got to use a lot of power for this laser to work. Uh, so lasers are not always terribly efficient, and in fact, usually only a fraction of the amount of electricity you pour into a laser gets represented in the power output of the laser itself. So I imagine there's a lot lost just to heat. 
Oh, well, yeah, that's he, that's one of the biggest problems, and, yeah. And also just focusing the laser, like uh-huh. using the energy so that the laser is truly focused. That that requires a lot of energy as well. So you might hear about something like a 20-kilowatt laser, which is incredibly powerful. It pales in comparison to the one we're going to talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. but way stronger than anything you or I could get yeah, our hands that's, on. Yeah, that's like a high-end military laser right yeah, there. Yeah, so 20-kilowatt laser actually needs way more than 20 kilowatts of electricity for it to run. So the 20 kilowatts is referring to the laser, not the machine. The laser output. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit more about wattage with lasers in a little bit to explain exactly what power output means. Uh, but yes, some systems are working on making that power output more efficient um, by creatively amplifying and combining multiple laser beams. For example, Lockheed Martin is working on this uh, spectral beam combining system for the Army that merges hundreds of little optical fiber lasers into one coherent beam, which allows pretty sharp focus at, at longer distances. One of the project's leaders describes it as sort of like the, the reverse of how a prism splits a beam of light. It it instead the system is combining. Gotcha. Um so that that does let you cut down on the energy wasted in in, in heat sink by letting you cool each individual fiber rather than trying to cool one giant system. Yeah. I do look forward to the hit song by Kermit the Frog, The Laser Connection. They'll be based on this principle. <laughs> uh, so laser systems also have to use, like, like the ones, the one on the USS Ponce has to use uh, multiple laser beams just to be able to to track and fire correctly. Yeah, because an energy weapon is going to be substantially different than shooting a missile. I mean, the advantage of a missile might be that if it ha- if it's very advanced, it might have its own target seeking capabilities sure. of some kind. Like once you've launched it, it can still seek after the the target. With a laser, you need to aim right the first time. Yeah. But your projectile moves at the speed of light. So. <laughs> well, and, and you're probably aiming at a moving target. Yeah. Which means, and, and like we said, a laser hitting a target is, it's not instantaneous destruction. You may have to have that laser concentrated right. on the target for a matter of a couple of seconds. So you need to follow it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, and, and if that sounds about, like it requires some good guidance and tracking. And that's exactly right. Uh, so one issue Lauren already mentioned, the fact about the atmosphere being a, a dis, having a distorting effect. Uh, the version that is on the USS Ponce has three beams. The first beam is just meant to measure that atmospheric distortion so that a computer system can then account for that for the actual fire beam, the one that's going to dismantle or disable the target. Uh, there's a second laser that is used specifically for targeting purposes. And then the third laser is the one that actually does the pew-pew part that you know makes the drone no longer a drone. And... Uh, uh, these systems are big, like the one on the USS Ponce is quite large and far larger than what any human being could ever carry, even if you had, a, you know, like a, uh, a, a robot a, suit. Right. Yeah. You would need essentially a tank behind you that was carrying the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then, even then, I don't think you would be holding any kind of emitter. It wouldn't make any sense. You would make more sense for you to have this be a uh, automated system that could track and move with precise moments because the further away you are from your target, then the smaller a degree will matter, like or the more a degree will matter. Like if I change my orientation by a single degree, if you're really far away, that could mean the difference between whether I hit you or I miss by a long shot, right? Let's so. say I suddenly had lots of money. 
and <laughs> I wanted to melt my neighbor's mailbox because that would be funny. Uh-huh. Could okay. I could I buy a twenty kilowatt laser no. myself? No, but you could buy you could buy a pretty decent, uh, powerful laser that is far greater than what you would find in a, like a keychain laser pointer. Uh, yeah, yeah, something you know in in between melting a mailbox and amusing your cat. Uh, yeah, m- maybe maybe like putting a pretty good singe mark on your wall. Yeah, you could you could get something <laughs> like a a two thousand milliwatt laser, uh, which is more than enough to be able to do things like pop balloons or light matches or even light other material if you focus on it long enough. Uh, these are legal. They're available. You can actually purchase one of them. I don't recommend playing with one because they are dangerous. You would need to wear eye protection and be aware that the beam you are playing with can, in fact, cause real damage, uh, both to living and non-living things. Um, if you want to melt your your neighbor's mailbox, I suggest don't do it. <laughs> but if you're determined to do it, charcoal would probably suffice. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't really need to go out and get a laser. Yeah. Um, but don't do it is the main message. Uh, yeah. So there are some commercial lasers out there that we we regular consumers can get our hands on that mm. are definitely. You know, they're definitely to a, a level powerful enough that they are dangerous oh, sure. if you don't handle them properly. Uh, but there are really a lot of applications for lasers that aren't just setting stuff on fire. Right. Yeah. There's cutting stuff. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, there, yeah, like, like, uh, like secret agents. No, Mr. Bond. Um, there are lasers that are used for industrial purposes, whether to drill holes or to cut or to weld. Lots of different, um, means, practical means to put lasers to work in that sense. Mm-hmm. But there are also lasers that are meant to do things that don't involve cutting or burning or drilling. They're really – it's just the the use of light as a, uh, a useful tool. For example, to figure out the distance between two very far apart objects. Yeah. How about surveyor's lasers? Yeah. That's a great example. We use those here where typically what you're doing is you take a – uh, a tripod that has a laser mounted to it. You aim it at a reflective surface that is, uh, you know, off in the distance. And when you fire the laser, you have sensors that detect when some of that laser light returns, when it's been reflected off of that reflective surface. And by taking the time it took for the laser to go out and bounce back, you know how far away you are from that distant object. Uh, what about something Way more distant than like, that. Like uh, the moon? Yeah. Wow, he could do that too. So yeah, when Apollo 11... It's a form of surveying. Uh, yeah, <laughs> surveying is. how far away the moon is. Kind yeah. of. Uh, so, you know, we, we've we known for a while, like, in general, how far away the moon was. But when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, one of the things the astronauts left behind was this funky mirror that they left on the surface. And people on Earth, what they could do is aim a nice, powerful laser up toward that uh, that mirror. And same sort of principle, you know, using the surveyor tool, essentially, to measure the amount of time it took for a laser to go from the laser itself, bounce off the mirror, and return back to Earth. You could then uh, find out how far away the moon was from Earth with much greater accuracy. In fact, it was described as being just a couple of inches or about the length of your finger. Like that's about the level of accuracy. Not that the moon was the length of your finger away from the the Earth. That's the margin of error. I'd hope not. Yes. That would have been a very bad day for us. (laughs) 
<laughs> for for many people. Yes, not just the three of not us. Not just the three of us. Yeah. No, we we probably also would not have had a day because this is Apollo Eleven we're talking about. Oh, well, that's that's <laughs> yeah. true too. Uh, but yeah, uh, lasers can also be used in medical procedures, of course. Sure. And we have talked implicated o- in the beginning of surgical fires. Indeed. Oh. And uh, and on this very show, we have talked about how lasers can be used to manipulate microscopic. Uh, materials like uh, like cells or something like that yep. to to study them or sort them uh, or do other science that starts with s yeah yeah there's lots of uh s uh, science stuff that has falls in that s category now of course we know the most important future technological application of lasers will be in the continued use of the laser disc Ooh, yeah. You know, guys, I did find my capacitance electronic discs that I had as a kid. I saw your picture of that. Yeah. No, I was going somewhere real with this. I was kidding. (laughs) So, no, I I don't think laser discs are coming back as much as it pains me to say that. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I don't know if you all ever saw the system that was put together for mosquito hunting, the targeted mosquito hunting system. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about it in Mm -hmm. our episode about mosquitoes. And the idea there was using lasers for insect patrol. See, I I like that idea, but only if you train ants to fire laser turrets at mosquitoes. (laughs) (laughs) Like just having this kind of insect-on-insect warfare type thing. I think it's kind of cool that uh, possibly in the backyards of the future or whatever kind of outdoor environments we want to protect uh, from from mosquito infestation – you could just have a perimeter system set up that blasts each mosquito with about the, the type of laser light you'd use to read a CD. So essentially and, this would be kind of a high-tech version of those bug zappers that we yeah. used to have. Except it would know not to harm other insects, right. helpful insects. And it wouldn't – also it's not using light to attract anything. It's just zapping stuff that happens to be within that perimeter. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, we're going to now talk about the super powerful crazy laser – that we've been alluding to this whole episode and talk about what kind of super crazy powerful science it can do. And sure. that laser itself is located in Japan. Right. So at Osaka University in Japan, researchers have uh, – they didn't build a new laser. They upgraded an existing laser. Yeah, they got a patch. They yeah. It's kind of finally <laughs> downloaded that saying, yeah. like, you know, you need to – before you shut down, do you want to install updates to this laser? <laughs> it is a minor upgrade <laughs> of this laser. It's called the LFEX, which stands for Laser for Fast Ignition Experiments. That's kind of ominous. Uh-huh. Uh, so it can produce now a new record-breaking amount of energy. But this is also not a laser that you could carry around in your hand or put in a holster. Uh, no, it's about 100 meters long. That's something like 330 feet. And it contains these four beam amplifiers, uh, which I have seen described as something like a very fancy light bulb. Okay. Um, I did not read into the technology of how it works, <laughs> so I can't say for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it operates in a vacuum, uh, which allows it to skirt around certain issues, like like air being pretty dense. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about the atmospheric distortion. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah, so the laser produces not a continuous beam, as you might be thinking about in the no. lasers you've seen in the past. Right. But it, it's pulses. It produces a split-second pulse of light. At incredibly high energy output, 2,000 trillion watts for one trillionth of a second. (laughs) So an unimaginably powerful laser beam for an unimaginably short amount of time. Right. But that 2,000 trillion watts – now, 
that's a number that's hard to grapple with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but it's going to – the thing that's going to be important in interpreting that is the length of the pulse because a watt isn't just energy. It's energy with relationship to time. Well, sure. a watt hour is energy in relationship to time. Watt, when we talk about watts with electronics, what we're really talking about is the load that they require in order to operate. Uh, in this case, we're not talking about the load that the laser requires. We're talking about its power output. Um, but yeah, there's there's this relationship with time that is an important part of it. Uh, so in lasers, watts are how we describe that optical power output. Um, and we determine that by multiplying the pulse energy of a laser times the repetition rate of the laser. That gives you essentially the average uh, optical power output. Okay. Uh, yeah, similarly, th- that concentration and amplitude and amplification and that very short burst are all the, the keys to LFX's super huge output. According to its creators, the device only consumes a couple hundred joules of energy to create that burst, which is like what it takes to run a microwave for a couple seconds or, or a light bulb. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, that's so that you can operate this this laser for one trillionth of a second. Yes. Yeah. So it's so, it's so that's telling you about the rate. Yeah. There, it's yeah. It's, it's telling you energy exactly. It's saying like, oh, it only takes this much. Yeah. But when you factor in the times, you're like, well, that's like an eternity. If you were to measure huh. the energy that the microwave takes every trillionth of a second, you would suddenly see where this disparity comes. Yeah. In. So what it, I wonder what would happen if this laser were left on continuously for two seconds. It would. Well, it would. <laughs> require 2,000 trillion watts per... It would yeah. probably require more energy than we could give it, right? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. So, like, if we look at uh, your your appliance at home, like, if you have a, a 500, uh, you know, kilowatt uh, laundry machine and you leave it on for an hour, that's 500 kilowatt hours. So, if we left this on for an hour, it'd be 2,000 trillion kilo... or, or 2,000 trillion watt hours or... Way more electricity than the entire world consumes in that same amount of time. We're talking like 1,000 times the world's demand for electricity. Uh, that's only if you were, again, to add up everything else the world uses for electricity in a, in a general, like, time period. Yeah, they offered a couple of other comparisons about what 2,000 trillion watts is. Yeah, uh, all of which are still kind of difficult to understand, like a stadium floodlight. All right, look at a look at the amount of light and and imagine the the energy output of a stadium floodlight. Okay. Then multiply that by a billion times. Oh. Uh, again. Yeah, you not, lost me. Yeah, doesn't really help. Or how about Take all the solar energy that falls on London. Now, is that the, the actual London city or London metro area? <laughs> I'm thinking it has to be the London metro area because a one square mile area doesn't sound like it's the same as 2,000 trillion watts. But what do I know? Uh, and what do you know, indeed? Yeah. So if you're looking at if you're looking at something like your your little keychain laser and you're wondering how does this measure up? Well, those are measured in milliwatts and usually just a few milliwatts. Even those super powerful ones I was talking about, the the consumer ones that we can get our hands on, those top out at around like two thousand milliwatts. So 
you know, orders of magnitude <laughs> yeah. are separating these two things. Okay, so what on earth do you use a 2,000 trillion watt laser for? All right, let's say that you are working really hard to get your galaxy in order, but there are these troublesome <laughs> rebels who just cause issues wherever you go. They're on Duntuane, Jonathan. <laughs> They're on Duntuane. Well, that's too far away for an effective demonstration. I think we'll use Alderaan as our example. <laughs> uh, no. Oh, but they're so peace-loving on Alderaan. That means it's just going to be way easier to blow them up. Uh, so if you heard a million souls cry out in anguish and then were suddenly silenced, I apologize. No, we're talking actually <laughs> about using it for science, not for destruction. So it's not... That's what they always say. Yeah, well, it's not currently being installed in a Death Star or being pointed at enemies. Grand it's, Moff Strickland over here is trying to get a uh, grant for I his, don't... I don't know, man. I don't think that Palpatine like ran on a platform of science. I don't think that that's what he was saying. <laughs> no, he was pretty much. I mean, he, he was orchestrating that whole Clone Wars thing. Remember the movies that never happened? No, so, I don't. You know, good for you. <laughs> the uh, so what's what actually going on here is that uh, when a, a laser this powerful hits matter, it mm-hmm. plasmifies it. It it essentially vaporizes it into an ionized gas. That mm-hmm. would be plasma. This is the stuff that, uh, out of everything that's not dark matter, it represents 99% of the matter that we have seen out in the galaxy. Right? You find it in stars. Yeah. Right? That's the stuff of stars, this, this ionized high-energy gas. And uh, so... While while you wouldn't like fire this at a person and then see that person puff away into vapor, uh, it would plasmify the surface where the laser hit. In fact, this is the idea behind certain pain uh, weapons that the military has developed, where the idea is that you direct high energy at a person, it plasmifies their clothing, which creates an incredible sense of pressure and heat, and thus is an overwhelming sensation of pain. And it thus, uh, you know, renders them unable to be violent against you. Uh, Sure. But but back in the lab, that also is a terrific tool for letting us study plasma. Yes. It means that we can actually create in the lab conditions that otherwise we would have to go, say, into the sun's atmosphere to discover. So like do what, we have a manned mission to the sun planned anytime soon? Anytime soon. Uh science fiction <laughs> science fiction films set aside, we do not have any current plans to visit uh, the sun up close and personal with a, a manned mission. What if we went in the wintertime when the sun is cold? Well, that's an excellent idea. <laughs> I think we should just do it at night. That's when it's coolest. But uh no, we we this means that we can actually create a a kind of uh, plasma in the lab that we can study that and we and depending upon what material we use to you know in vaporizing we can study lots of different stuff and see how it behaves what are its various attributes this will tell us a lot more about how stars work it'll tell us about uh more about their lifespans like how stars evolve over time mm-hmm. giving us a greater understanding of stuff that we we know bits and pieces about. We know a lot about stars, but this will give us even more observable data that will let us build stronger ideas of of stars and how they operate. Uh, And even how the whole universe operates. We we can use this for for Big Bang-related studies, right? Yeah. In fact, there have been a lot of people who have suggested that these sort of lasers could potentially 
stand in for other massive facilities like uh, particle accelerators and that you could use a laser to vaporize material and create a plasma that would be similar to the conditions that you would see shortly after the Big Bang. So you could actually observe this, this these conditions and get a better idea of what the Big Bang was, you know, what the, the events following the Big Bang were like mm-hmm. um, and how our, our universe kind of formed over time. Okay, but uh, I, like Emperor Palpatine, do not really believe in science. Let me g- give me something practical that could okay, come out of this. Right, right. Because, you know, obviously, if, if we're politicians and we're going to fund something, then we're going to demand that there be some practical application, not just, oh, yeah. we learned stuff. Right. Uh, we need to make a weapon. Come on. Well, no, not necessarily a weapon, <laughs> but we could potentially use this to, and in fact, this is the one of the big things that Elfex uh, is looking at, is using lasers in our pursuit of creating nuclear fusion here on Earth. Uh, as an energy source. Yeah, as a means of uh, producing electricity. You can get electricity from fusion. Uh, and it's not even, it doesn't even involve turning turbines like every other method <laughs> that we talk about mm-hmm. practically, with, the ex- with a couple of exceptions. I mean, obviously solar is different. But anyway, uh, with nuclear fusion, you can generate electricity. The problem we've run into with nuclear fusion is that while we know it works because that's what stars do, that's how the sun generates the energy that we enjoy here on Earth, it is very difficult to create that same scenario here on our planet because we have to create incredible pressure. We have to incre- create an incredible amount of heat in order to, to start the fusion reaction. And it's difficult to get more energy out of that than it required us to put into it. Uh, right, which means that it's scientifically interesting, but not practical. Exactly, because if you're spending more energy to make this thing happen than you're getting out of it, then it's a net loss, obviously. Yeah, right? it's, a, it's a crappy motor. Yeah, it's, you don't want to do that. If you can avoid that, avoid it, because obviously you could have just used that, that starting energy to do something else rather than pour it into a losing system. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are a lot of different uh, research labs across the world, they're looking at lasers as a way of initiating fusion reactions and seeing if they can create a fusion reaction that does, in fact, generate more energy than it required to start it up. And uh, I believe it was actually 2014 when I heard of the first time that a lab managed to get a reaction that produced more energy than it required to start, but it didn't use up very much of the actual fuel so it wasn't efficient. In other words, it wasn't a sustained thing. It was one but it showed that there is at least some promise that we could get this to work. And if we can get it to work, that would be a boon for humankind. Oh yeah. Because we would have a clean source of electricity, uh more than enough electricity to meet all of our needs right now. Although obviously every time we come up with a new way to generate more than what we need, we find new ways of needing it. Mm. But uh <laughs> but but most theories say that this would if we were to crack fusion and really get it to work, just based upon the the uh the basic fuels we would have access to right now, that would last us for like five thousand years without us having to figure out anything else. So that's it, it's compelling. one of the things that could potentially end uh, scarcity. Yeah, it, it certainly could end our dependence upon fossil fuels and it could end up uh, really helping us fight things like climate change. Although, I mean, obviously, there are certain things in motion now that that's happening, whether we quit fossil fuels today or not. 
but we could decrease the severity of those consequences if we were able to make this work. So there are a lot of incentives to getting fusion to work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and really, I... We've been joking about it, but I want to hammer home that this is not the beginning of, of Death Star technology. Yeah. Uh, I read a really good blog post by a physics PhD student by the name of Matt Springer, who calculated the gravitational binding energy of the Earth, a.k.a. the amount of force that it would take to blow the Earth apart. And he said it was about 2.2 times 10 to the 32nd power joules, which is... A few more than the 200 joules that it takes to run this laser. <laughs> so in other words, uh, this laser is not fully operational. No. At least for Death Star Not purposes. for Death Star purposes. Uh, there are a lot of different organizations around the world that are already planning on building either comparable laser systems or ones that would be even more powerful than this one. So this one, as of the recording of this podcast, is... Well, it has the greatest power output laser uh, in all of Earth. It's People bicker about what most powerful laser really means because mm-hmm. there is a time element to operating a laser. But at any rate, uh, it is the one that has the greatest power output per unit of time than any other laser out there. Uh, but there are other ones that are going to be bigger, assuming that they get built. Uh, the Extreme Light Infrastructure is an organization in Eastern Europe that has plans to build a laser that will be 10 times more powerful than the LFX. So we'll I be. Can't wait. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> if it works for fusion, if it does get fusion to make sense, mm-hmm. then this will be a huge practical, um, improvement in the lives of people all over the world. But, even if it turns out that lasers are an important part but not the secret sauce to getting fusion to work, we still have the opportunity to learn so much. And like we've said on this podcast multiple times, learning you can't you can't put a value on learning because you never can anticipate the sort of things that can come out of what you learn. You might be able to come up with something that we cannot anticipate right now Mm -hmm. simply because we don't know what we don't know. And that's why I love any sort of scientific endeavor that's purely for scientific purposes because it's never purely for scientific purposes. There's something that will always come out of that that will be of some practical use somewhere down the road. We just can't anticipate it. Yes. (laughs) To – hey – I'm just saying I have plans for 2020 <laughs> and in order for them to come about, lasers need to really get on board. That's all I'm saying. So uh, this is really a cool story. Uh, there's plenty for you to read up on. You can actually see pictures of the the facility and you know when you see it, you're like – so that's what a laser looks like because it's enormous, right? It's huge, like there's scaffolding everywhere. Yeah, you're like, yeah, it's kind of like when you first see the Large Hadron Collider, and you're like, whoa, okay, yeah. you know, for something that's just pushing protons around, this thing is enormous. Mm-hmm. So really interesting stuff. And guys, if you have any suggestions about things we should tackle in future episodes of Forward Thinking, some sort of topic that you want to know, what is the future of this? Let us know. Send us a message. Our email is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Google+. Plus. Our handle at both of those is fwthinking. Or go to Facebook. Type in fwthinking in the search bar. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message there. Follow us. Be our friend. We need more of those. And we'll talk to you again really soon.
For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.